From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. On March 1st, the Israeli Supreme Court issued a ruling allowing four Palestinian families slated for eviction from their homes in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah to stay in their homes for now. So what is the significance of this ruling? I spoke with Jerusalem-based prominent Palestinian activist Amani Khalifa about Israel's forced expulsion of Palestinians from Jerusalem and An-Naqab in the south and the Israeli policies and practices of confiscation of Palestinian lands. I first started by asking her about Israel's response to Russia's war on Ukraine. More than two million people have fled Ukraine trying to find refuge in neighboring countries. So far, majority have entered Poland, but Israel has encouraged Ukrainian Jews to immigrate to Israel. Last week, the World Zionist Organization's Settlement Division, which is funded by the Israeli government, announced the building of 1,000 housing structures for Ukrainian Jewish families. Haaretz quoted Interior Minister Ayelet Sheket saying that over 90% of Ukrainian arriving at the Israel's borders are not Jewish, and that influx of refugees cannot go on. So first, it's really important to remember that it's not the first time that Israel is using this war atrocities, refugees crisis in order to increase its population and transform Jewish into settlers and Zionists in its states. It happened uh, when it expelled the Arab Jews from Arab countries like Egypt, Lebanon, Syria. It happened in in Europe when uh, Jewish were uh, fleeing Germany and anti-Semitic attack against them. So it tries all the time to portray itself and present itself as the safe heaven, the safe home for the Jewish population. And it is important to make this distinction and differentiate between settlers inside Israel and Jewish population and to be against this project of demography and having a Jewish national state that Israel is trying all the time to become and present itself as such. So the Ukrainian refugees are uh, no different than this long historic context. And as you said, it's really important to remember Ukrainian refugees who are not Jewish are not welcomed into Israel. They will be deported. They are here temporary and they will be sent back. I have no clue where exactly, but Israel is not willing to provide them uh, with shelters, home, as it's willing to transform Jewish Ukrainian refugees into settlers. So you are only welcome into the country if you will be serving its purpose and its goals and the demographic imbalance, I would say, inside the state itself. And it's quite ironic, Amani, that Israel, with its record, now it's proposing to mediate between um, Ukraine and uh, Russia. Since the beginning, I guess, 
it's only, I mean, from Western countries was the Zionist state. And, you know, if I refer to the state as Israel, it's always in quote, in quote, I hope I don't need to mention this, but the Zionist state kept its relation with Russia. It tried not to come out clearly condemning the invasion of Russian in Ukraine because it has its relation with the Russian government when it comes to Syria and to protect its borders. So it's playing on both levels. I mean, showing support, humanitarian support, medicines, sending them to Ukraine, while at the same time maintaining its relationship to the Russian government. And I must say, to me, it feels surreal to see all of the banners inside colonies such as Tel Aviv uh, condemning the war and and saying we are anti-war. Well, Israel in the Middle East, the colonial regime in the Middle East, it impacts not only Palestine, but truly everywhere around the globe. It's initiating war, sells arms to different countries, even to Ukraine and others. So it's... Eyewares. Yes, so it's beyond, I would say, even hypocrisy, what Israel is doing in that sense. It's surreal. I have no other word to describe this uh, situation and to imagine that they will be coming and holding, perhaps, I mean, one of the scenarios is that They're inviting everyone to come and meet in Jerusalem in the occupied city to hold talks against war while the city itself is burning from violence and war at the same time, initiated by the state of Israel. So let's move on and talk about the forced expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem, which became a catalyst for mass unified protests in historic Palestine in the occupied West Bank in Gaza, inside 48. What has changed since then? Just recently, Israel's Supreme Court ruled that the group of Palestinian families that was supposed to be evicted from the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah can remain in their homes for the time being. First off, how significant is this ruling? And what really has changed in East Jerusalem, both in Sheikh Jarrah and in Silwan? since last May. Last year, during the Unity Intifada, the Unity Uprising uh, that took place on 18th of May started, we have witnessed unprecedented, I would say, seen across all historic Palestine, inside the Green Line and outside the Green Line, Gaza, and even Palestinian refugees in Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon and Jordan were marching, claiming their right of return to their homes and their lands. That moment is significant because we all discovered our agency collectively as people who have been uh, fragmented since 1948 and even before when the Zionist regime started in Palestine. So all of the sudden, the local issues and the local struggles in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, in Jerusalem, or in other towns in 48, in Imm al-Fahim, or in Ramallah, or other villages and towns in the West Bank, people started comprehending these struggles as not only local ones, but ones that we share 
together as a collective. We were able to move beyond these fragmentations that were imposed on us. We understand that what is happening in El Jalil, in the Galili in 1948, is related, connected to what's happening, the disposition and the forcibly displacement of Palestinians in Jerusalem. So we share the same destiny, we share the same struggles, even if Israel made us all the time busy locally struggling alone in our villages and our communities. So we're able to overcome these obstacles and to unite as one people, as one population, demanding liberation of our land and connecting our struggles together. This was the essence of the events in May last year. And I must say, we are still witnessing the outcomes of this, because if we go to the second part of your question about Sheikh Jarrah and the latest event in Sheikh Jarrah, not only in Karmish Jauni, but with the Salim family, for instance. There were people coming from Imm al-Faham to protest in Sheikh Jarrah to support the Salim family against the massive presence of the settlers in the neighborhood and against the threat of the family to be evicted from their home. So that moment, it feels that we can we cannot go back beyond that moment. We're only moving forward. We're building on the seeds of that moment in our future struggles and our current struggles. So what has happened since then? How many families have been evicted? Because everybody celebrated and considered this ruling to be very, very significant in helping Palestinians to stay in their homes, at least for the foreseeable future. It's really important to understand that the legal system in the Zionist state will never serve justice for Palestinians. It was only designed to strengthen the Jewish population, the settler population relation to the land, to the property, and exclude, dispossess, ethnically cleanse Palestinians. This is how the legal system in Israel has been created. And usually the colonial state would draw the um, facts on the ground and later, only later on, make um, laws and legal. legalize all of these facts on the ground. I don't see the ruling as a victory. It might give the population, it might give the families more time to breathe, who has more time to react and act and think. So the families, in my own opinion, they succeeded in having this struggle for a longer time, but we can't say we won in that battlefield, which is the legal system, because we can't win in that battlefield at all. So it's really important to understand this. They didn't guarantee the families to stay in their homes. They said, rather, we will not determine the ownership yet until we go and investigate the land property ownership. And it's really important to think or to take in consideration this ruling because land property ownership in Jerusalem and in all historic Palestine hasn't been determined yet, even before 1948. 
because during the Ottoman Empire, people weren't truly registering their land. They were afraid from taxes. They didn't want to register their lands. And they were relying on their family system. Usually families would inherit the land and they would trust the local systems to maintain and the ownership over the land for specific families and specific communities, etc. So this hasn't been dealt with. And it's really risky because it might be an, a window to more evictions, to more ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem rather than people having their homes and their lands. We don't know what to expect from this procedure, but we know, we know the system very well. And we know if the Israeli system is saying we want now to start investigating the land ownership and the land property, it might give them more access to seize more land and confiscate more land from Palestinians. In Sheikh Jarrah and other neighborhoods in Jerusalem, such as Beit Safafa and Silwan, where there already have been cases of controversy, I would say, or legal cases running in court systems, in the Israeli court systems over land property and homes, ownership, etc. And there are also settler organizations that are threatening the Palestinian families in Silwan, in Sheikh Jarrah. And also, even though this ruling came down, I was reading in Al Jazeera that last November, 84 Palestinian homes in Wadi Yasul neighborhood of Silwan in the occupied East Jerusalem were facing demolition to make way for enlarging and quote-unquote Israeli national park in the area. They're doing the same thing, exactly the same thing in Annaqa. So what has changed since then? I mean, regardless of what this ruling is, what has changed on the ground with respect to Palestinians who've been threatened with expulsion from their homes? To live under a settler colonial regime means that you are consistently under the bulldozer to come and demolish your home or under the Israeli military risk to come and evict you, to come and throw you out of your home. It doesn't stop, nor in Jerusalem or uh, in Naqab or inside, quote-unquote, the state of Israel itself. It will keep continuing, and that's why we're saying it is a continuous struggle. But from a population and a people's steadfastness and insistence on resistance point of view, there is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So if, if the bulldozer before last year, you would come and demolish your home and no one would hear about it and no people would gather in front of you or gather in the community and show solidarity and rise up against all of these policies and determine that the Israeli state should stop its policies, its eviction from Palestinian communities. Now it's not the case anymore. People discovered their ability to create change on the ground because 
it made difference. And by the way, the ruling in Sheikh Jarrah and the ruling in favor of Salim family, not to evict them, although, as I said, it means only gaining time, but it is a political decision that the current government has taken. It basically saying we are not ready for another round of confrontation. And remember, we're only one month away from Ramadan. And Ramadan usually in a city as Jerusalem, people gather during the night. They have nothing to do after iftar meal. They will go to the old city. They will practice uh, their right to be and reclaim their right to be in the city because they have been deprived from even basic rights, such as sitting in front of Damascus gates or on the stairs of Damascus gates, smoking a cigarette, drinking tea. We are speaking about basic behaviors that everyone should have everywhere. And these are the mere or the minimum needs that people here practice in Jerusalem because there are no public spaces, even if they are trying to build a national park in Silwan that would only serve the settler community and the Al-Ad National Park in Silwan. I was going to ask you about Al-Ad Settler Organization, that according to Haaretz, they received $115 million between 2006 and 2013 and filed to Israel's registration of quote-unquote non-profit organization. And this settler organization has been terrorizing the Palestinian community in Selwan. According to Middle East Monitor, Al-Ad Settler Organization, also known as Ir David Foundation, is Israel's weapon to steal Palestinian lands, including private land owned by Palestinians who were forced out of their homes in 1948 or 67. Yes, there are two major settler organizations that are active in Jerusalem. Al-Ad is active more in Silwan and Nahalat Shimon in Sheikh Jarrah. These settler organizations, Al-Ad, they're taking a massive support from the government. Funding, but not only the government, let's say, if they want uh, to make uh, any project in Silwan, they will allow them to confiscate land in order to expand Ir David, which is the national park that you mentioned in Silwan. So people usually, when thinking about the state of Israel, they would think, okay, there is Israel, and there is the Israeli legal system, and there is the Israeli parliament, and there is these crazy exceptional settlers that are acting outside of the law or of the norms, because you only can find them in the West Bank. It's really important to understand that all of these entities are colluding together, working together in full coordination with the government and with the backup of the legal system, of the Israeli legal system that allows all of these actions to be translated in the ground, in eviction, in demolition, in land seizing, and confiscation. So it's really important not to exceptionalize these settlers and to think about them as one crazy group that is acting outside of the law. 
it is in full coordination of the government. If you were following the news from Sheikh Jarrah, you must see the Israeli Knesset member, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who provoked all of the confrontations, the latest escalation in Sheikh Jarrah. So in order to understand what Itamar Ben-Gvir is doing in Sheikh Jarrah, because he represents one of these settler organizations, and they have a party, a political party in the Israeli Knesset, which is called Utsma Yehudit in the Israeli Knesset. He's working and he's active and part of the opposition, not in the coalition in the Israeli parliament. So he's against the government and Naftali Bennett, and he wants to gain, let's say, credits or interest or goals. And they're using our communities, they're using our homes as battlefields against their own government. So Itamar Ben-Gvir, he doesn't want to give the families in Sheikh Jarrah more time, and he would act and speak against the ruling in the Israeli court. It's not in favor of the settlers. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter from which party you are. The only difference is the strategy that these parties are taking. So one group would say, we want to evict immediately. We want to ethnic cleanse. We keep doing this nonstop. And others think about it strategically. Everyone is watching us now. There has been a report from Amnesty that everyone has been speaking about. And it made a huge fuzz. And our name and our reputation in the international arena. So let's keep the demolition and all of these policies being implemented slowly. And let's not do them all at once. So the Wadi Yasul that you mentioned in Silwan and the demolition orders in Silwan, there are over 20 homes under threat to be demolished in that specific area. But we will not see the bulldozer coming and demolishing them at once. It's going to do it slowly, one shop at the beginning and then another home in order not to make it to the news, in order not to show this as a phenomena. So let's keep it individual cases, private cases of one home here and another singular home there. And that's how people wouldn't, and, and that's how you will exhaust the local community as well in terms of support, steadfastness, resistance, because you can't keep up with their rhythm. It's way faster than ours. And it's everywhere at the same time. Sometimes in the news, you can't keep up even with the news, reading the news about what is happening in Palestine. So not mentioning what is happening for the people who are the news in that sense, who are the subjects of these violations in Jerusalem and again elsewhere. Amania, how many people, I'm sure it's probably difficult to give an exact number, but how many people have been actually evicted and have been forced out and have been rendered homeless in the past year? I truly can't give an exact figure because displacement policies differ. It could be under home demolition, or as you said, it could be for land confiscation for the national park purposes, or it could be self-home demolition as well because people can't pay the expenses of the demolition because if the government and uh, the municipality and its police come and demolish your home themselves, you need to pay them. 
the expenses and sometimes people find themselves taking the harder choice and demolish them themselves their homes in order to save these expenses. I don't remember singular week that has passed without us hearing the news about a home demolition in Jerusalem or home eviction in Jerusalem. But home demolitions are more likely to happen in the city. What happens to families who lose their house? Usually the families will go and rent or live with other family members. But you're touching on an important topic here because to us, when the news ends, when the event ends, it feels that it stopped, right? The misery, this horrible journey of a specific one family in front of this machine or this state ends, but it doesn't. And they'll try to settle somewhere with other family members, perhaps find the work in order to be able to pay rent for their home, that they will be rented. But I can't tell you that there is a well-known or that this journey is, is known for us. Most of the time it's hidden and we don't know what happens to the family afterwards. And they don't get most of the time support from any party or anyone. And they will be facing their destiny themselves without, again, any support. And you were telling me before the interview that the public spaces in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, are shrinking for the Palestinians. Can you elaborate on that a little more? What I meant by this, not only the physical space, but the symbolic space in the city for us to organize, to be, to feel that we can do something to move. I was speaking this morning to one of my friends and I've been living in Jerusalem for the last 18 years. I wasn't born in this city. And I remember better times in the city where even restaurants were in the city and and now we don't have them or cultural events. We don't have them, cultural organizations. Everything is shutting down. Everything is um, striking. Everything is getting smaller. So not only the physical and public space, but what Israel is trying to do in Jerusalem to prevent any horizon of change, of movement for the local community, because it escalates its violence, arrests, massive arrests, preventing any form of organizing for the local community, whether it's a youth movement or a cultural organization, it Every every party, every entity, every movement, every collective has been facing a massive attack, violent attack from the state. And some of them, they just decided to stop their work because they couldn't keep going under these circumstances and conditions in the city. Let's uh, move on to talk about Anarab where Israel has also continued with the policy of land grab and dispossession of the Bedouin Palestinian communities there. In January, over 100 Bedouins, a third of the miners, were arrested 
because they were protesting the Jewish National Fund's planting trees of 300 dunam as part of a 5,000 dunam or a little more than 1,200 acres afforestation project on the land where Bedouins live and have lived for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Palestinian Bedouin community and what they have been facing? Al-Naqab is the southern district of Palestine. Actually, it consists 60% of historic Palestine. So it's massive. Half of Palestine is a naqab and people don't know of it. The local community historically is a Bedouin community that had, still have an intimate relationship to their land. And this is what Israel broke in 1948 when they expelled the vast majority of uh, the Bedouin and lots of them flee to Gaza, by the way. And uh, Israel has been trying to break the relationship with the land, portray these Bedouins as uh, nomads, people who are not connected to the land. There is no connection. Um, between them and to their land because they keep moving. So this is the ethos about it. This is the stereotype uh, that Israel um, has been presenting, portraying. In Al-Naqab, when the military ruling ended in 1966, Israel created seven townships for the people there and they concentrated the population and forcibly reorganized the community into only seven townships and made them live into these townships. And still, the settler colonial regime didn't manage to reorganize all of the Bedouin population back then. So after 1948 and after building, restructuring these seven townships, the remaining population started building for themselves different uh, residential areas in different localities in Al-Naqab. And uh, Israel didn't recognize uh, these villages where people decided to live. And nowadays we have around 35, quote-unquote, unrecognized villages that the Bedouins live in. And when we say the term, quote-unquote, unrecognized by the state, it means that the community is deprived from all services, electricity, basic services, and infrastructure. And they make up a third of uh, Naqab's population, but they occupy only 3% of the region's land. Because Israel is presenting Al-Naqab as a region, as a desert, that the land itself is not fertile for plantation, but the reality on the ground and the land is has been confiscated by the state of Israel. And the remaining one, Israel is trying to seize now under the greenwashing project. Because what is this project, it aims at transforming the land, confiscating the land from the indigenous community into forestation plans. 
by the JNF. The JNF is one of the main organization that has been established even before the establishment of the settler colonial regime. It was founded in 1901. And its main purposes was to plant different plants that they are detached from the land itself, the environment itself, in one hand, and have national park, as you said, and hide ethnically cleansed communities and erase them totally from the memory as well as from the ground uh, by these forestation plants. And lately, the situation of the unrecognized villages continued till 2000. There was a milestone in that policy. And Israel, in order to contain, I would say, the population part of its policy of containing the population and its anger and its resistance, recognized only 11 villages. So the remaining communities, they're still living under this harsh Uh, circumstances. And Israel now want to, again, take the land and make a use of it uh, for uh, the JNF purposes and the forestation and plantation of foreign trees and change the whole atmosphere and the whole landscape of the Naqab. Contrary to Israel's propaganda, historically, the northern Naqab has been put to agrarian use. And um, and its green pastures has provided Palestinian Bedouins with huge spaces to herd cattle, to grow wheat and barley. They once exported barley and, and wheat to the British Empire. The plantation and the forestation or the greenwashing, I mean, whatever term we're using in order to describe the land confiscation and the displacement of uh, the local community is not the only policy that has been implemented in a Naqab. There are uh, settlements, military bases, Uh, that are about to be built in the area, highways and roads, settlements, expansion of settlements. This is the essence. When we speak of settler colonial regime, people might think it's an abstract. What are you speaking about when you, what do you mean by settler colonial regime? It means that it only, it will always aim to expand its colonies, And for these colonies to be expanded, it needs to provide infrastructure and highways and main roads and parks and national parks and forests that are foreign. And at the same time, doing this for the Zionist Jewish population inside the state of Israel, at the same time, displacing Palestinians. Because the the main two tribes in January that have been facing the Israeli machinery and guns and and police, there are Atrash and Sawa tribes. And they rise up because they will be basically using their livelihood. As you said, people plant these uh, lands, they live from uh, relying on the land. It's their main source of living, main source of income. So all of these claims of the state of Israel that uh, it's a land with no people and, and Bedouin, they keep moving from one area to other, they're nomads, they have no intimate relation to the land. It's, it's false 
accusation, but it is the main policy. And it comes with um, Orientalist, I would say, point of view and perspective over the Bedouins. And although Bedouins are a major, a massive part of the Palestinian population, but Israel has been working in order to divide them from the rest of Palestinians. It all the time tries to portray them as ones who haven't been part of the liberation movement, the Palestinian liberation movement. And they are more connected to the state. They serve in the army. The numbers are minor from the Bedouin communities who serve. And they didn't serve from willingness, but they maybe perhaps believe that they can seek security or get insurance from the state in order to keep their land. But what we have witnessed in January, there is a new generation, minors, young generation who have been leading all of these protests in a Naqab, refusing to accept these plans to allow Israel to implement these plans. And it has been truly the situation of Bedouins even before 1948. They they are part from the Palestinian society, the Palestinian movement in general. But Israel all the time is trying to portray them as outsiders, as if they don't belong. But it doesn't succeed anymore because as we witnessed a massive movement, a massive mobilization for Sheikh Jarrah, the same thing happened for a Naqab. Not only protests in a Naqab, but protests in other places in Palestine, inside 48 and uh, the West Bank. What Israel did during the 50s when it exported Jewish from Arab countries, they resided them in the frontiers, in the Naqab area specifically, Mm. because this is the system of hierarchy. It reflects the system of of hierarchy that the Israeli state uh, already has been built off, and it uh, increases only by time, strengthening only by time. So the European Jews, that the Jewish population that came from Europe, it resides in Tel Aviv, in colonies in the center. But the Arab Jews that were transformed into settlers later on, Israel made them reside in in Naqab. Yeah, according to Human Rights Watch, Israel demolished more than 10,000 homes in, uh, in Naqab between 2013 and 2019. And in 2003, the Knesset approved the so-called Prower Plan, designed to forcibly displace residents of uh, Palestinian villages in the Naqab. According to reports, under this law, Israel would have forcibly displaced 70,000 Bedouins from the area. What we understand today, and the Prower back then in 2003, created massive protests across all Palestine. I remember I was still a student at Hebrew University, and we were organizing ourselves in massive protests in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in in the Triangle area, in the center of Palestine, and in Northern Palestine. Mm. And there was one moment where we thought that the proper plan 
has been stopped. It's not going, Israel is not going to proceed further with this plan. But again, we come today and Israel has created a different plan. So the plan itself, its name might be different, but the purpose, the essence of it, it's gonna continue. That's why they'll continue, we'll continue with our struggle. And it's about existence at the end. It's not about one specific plan that we want to overcome and that's it. No, it's deeper than then. It wouldn't stop by stopping the Kurd family from um, being evicted from their homes, being transferred, ethnically cleansed from their homes, or one plan in Naqab. Because all the time we speak about all of these plans and all of these struggles, and we need to keep them in the news. We need to provide all of these details, but it's a continuous yeah. process. So today we're speaking about Al-Naqab and Sheikh Jarrah. You might host another Palestinian woman activist and, and speak about other plans in Northern Palestine or in the West Bank. So it is all part of one big puzzle at the end of the day.